Bibles, please, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. And uh, if you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one right in front of you, in the pew. You want to look for the book of Hebrews, which would be near the end of the Bible. Back one-third. And find your way, then, to Hebrews, chapter 12. And this morning, Lord willing... Uh, before we partake in the Lord's Supper, we will be looking at verses 16 and 17, which closes out this chapter for us, which actually began, not chapter, but section, I'm sorry, section for us that began in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12, and finishes up in verse 17. And then, uh, Lord willing, next time we'll look at verse 18 and beyond. Last week, just for some review there, we looked at this idea of whether or not we are our brother's keeper. Are we our brother's keeper? And most today in the culture today would say, "Mm, nah, really, you know, what's going on in that guy's life is none of my business. Uh, You know, I got enough problems of my own. I I, I don't need to be over there talking to somebody else about what's what's going on in their life. But the Bible is very clear that you are responsible to help one another. To, to come aside, to come beside each other, and to help each other cross the finish line in what the Bible calls the spiritual agonia, or spiritual marathon. It is not only completely appropriate for us to be our brother's keeper, the Word of God actually says it's essential. It's an important part of us all finishing Uh, crossing the finish line together. And in the church, we have a responsibility to those who have fallen into sin or or stumbling or are uh, having doubts about their faith. Anybody that's in that journey that just kind of stumbles a little bit, as a body of Christ, we have a responsibility to be looking for those people within the body of Christ and to come alongside them and help them. We're to encourage them to turn from those things, whatever it is, whatever it is that's caused them to stumble, and to give themselves wholly back to Jesus. And there's not one of us here this morning that has not needed encouragement from time to time. I don't care how strong a believer you are. You have needed other brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside you at one time or another in your life. And if you haven't, uh, hold on, because that time is coming. It's not an issue of one person trying to be superior to the other. As a matter of fact, just the opposite. All true believers understand that we are on this journey together, that the church is not a museum for a bunch of righteous relics who have it all together and got no sin in their life and can just look at the world condescendingly and say, oh, you know, uh, we've got it together, but they don't. All true believers really, truly understand that the church is a hospital for a bunch of broken people who are redeemed and saved by the grace of God. That's it. And we understand that we all have our things that God is working on in our hearts. And then we're all in this marathon together. And just like Uh, Just like an earthly marathon, there's some who are further ahead and there's some who are further behind. But the whole pack just keeps moving forward. But they do that, in a sense, together. There are people along the side cheering them along. There are people in the race themselves cheering them along, encouraging them to go. 
That's the idea here that the author of Hebrews wants to express. Listen, you're not in this alone. Your spiritual journey is not a solo ride. It was never created to be that way. Your faith is to be lived out in community. The gifts you have are not just for you. I know that's countercultural to the world we live in today, which talks about our happiness and our feelings and where we're at in the world. But the Bible is very clear. Listen carefully. It's not just about you. I, I don't know how to say that more plainly, but it's not just about you. So can we collectively just kind of get over ourselves a little bit? I mean that lovingly. I'm not, I'm, not being, I'm not being snarky here. I'm just telling us. You heard it all Sunday school. You've been inheriting in this section since the Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It's not just about you and your personal happiness, okay? You have a responsibility to one another within the body of Christ to love one another, to serve one another, to help one another, to carry one another's burdens. It's not just a nice lofty suggestion. It is a command in the word of God because God knew that as you're living out your faith day to day in the world, you're going to keep getting beaten down and that you're going to need to gather together as often as necessary and be built up, edified by the word of God, by other believers, by people that God has strategically placed in your life to help you along at this point in your journey. You need each other. Wrap our heads around that right now because, and look around you, brothers and sisters, because all who are truly saved, this isn't the only time you're going to see them, okay? Eternity is a long, long time. And matter of fact, it's forever. So this is just the trial run where we work off all the rough spots, okay? And eternity when we're with Jesus forever. Won't have those same issues. So there's none of us here this morning that's not needed encouragement. And again, it's not just about you. And this idea of being there for each other and being responsible for each other and caring for each other and loving each other is what the author of Hebrews wants to encourage us to do this morning. So before we unpack the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his holy word. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, for the truth of your word. And I thank you, Lord, for every dear saint that you've brought here today. I thank you for every person, Lord, you've directed their past, their steps to be here this morning. And, Lord, I pray that you would give us open eyes and an open heart and an open mind to your truth. And that as we hear your truth, we're not thinking, boy, the person next to me really needs to hear this. But rather, we would do with your truth what you tell us to do, which is to first, Lord, ask ourselves, Lord, what would you have me do with this? How can I apply this to my life in a way that brings you glory? not me. Then, Lord, I can look to my brother or sister beside me and help them. And Lord, that's our heart's desire. That's the kind of church, Lord, that we are striving to be through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, through the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. That's the kind of church, Lord, we're striving to be. You know our hearts, Lord. Help us in this marathon to begin the kind of church that lives out that kind of faith every day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. 
So hopefully you found your place now in Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 12. I just want to go through these quickly until we get to our main text. This will be review. Uh, and again, the context of, begins in verse 12. So here we go. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And so we, if you're looking at your notes here as a review, verses 12 and 13, we said to finish the race, we have to help one another. If we have one whose hands are drooping down, if they're tired, if they're exhausted, if there's this time of life is just beating them down, if their knees are getting weak from the fight every day in their spiritual walk, we're to be looking for those folks and then go alongside and help them. We're not only to strengthen ourselves to endure, that's the given, that's what the first 11 verses were about, but now he says, okay, you're good, you're healthy, right? But while you're while you're on solid ground, while your feet are on solid ground, be looking around for others to help as well. And asking ourselves, how can I help them to endure to the end? And then we saw in the first part of verse 14, he says, well, I'll show you how you do that. I'll show you how you help one another. First of all, pursue peace with all men. So uh, your second point there, verse 14a, to finish the race, we must pursue peace with one another. The first thing we are to do is to pursue peace with all men. All men means all people, right? And that means all inside the church and outside the church. Even if they're persecuting you. And some in the worldwide church today want peace with all men, but they want peace with all men so much that they're ready to compromise their faith to get it. That's not, let me repeat, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. What we are called to do, my friends, is to live our lives peaceably in a way that others may see the love of Christ shining in us and through us. But never are we called to do that at the expense of our faith. The second way that we are to be at peace with all men is those inside the body of Christ. And sometimes that's even the more difficult part, isn't it? Because these are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we get wounded by one another, it seems to sting a little bit more than it does with those outside the church. But whenever there's unresolved conflict within the church, the tendency is to drop out of the race for a while. But rather than dropping out, the author of Hebrews says you must pursue peace. And that word pursue is a very vivid word. It's the idea of a hunter tracking down prey. That's how zealous, if you, if you will, you are to be as you pursue peace with one another. We're to pursue peace with that kind of zealousy, not letting things simmer over, not letting things boil up and just be festering all the time. We are to go and to get those resolved biblically in a God-honoring way. The second part of verse 14 tells us that we're also to pursue sanctification. You may have the word holiness. And so your point there on verse 14b, to finish the race, we must pursue sanctification with one another. What is sanctification? It means to be set apart or to made holy. You are expected to progress in your sanctification. Matter of fact, the Lord commands us to be growing in our faith all the time. And if we're not growing in our faith, if we're not maturing in our faith, 
Others within the body of Christ should be taking notice. What is going on? How can I help them? What needs to be done here? How can I come alongside them and help them through this? Every true believer wants to be more like Jesus, not so that we can, uh, not so that God will accept us, because your acceptance isn't based upon your performance. Thank God for that. Your acceptance, and you are graciously, God has accepted you and forgiven you and pardoned you and adopted you through Jesus Christ alone. That's it. You can't earn your way to heaven. You can't work your way to heaven. You can't build enough orphanages or hospitals. You can't give enough to charity to get yourself into heaven. The Bible is very clear. You are saved by grace through faith alone. This not of yourself, lest any man boast. And the consequences of living a life like as that we grow in grace. We grow in God's grace. And as we grow in God's grace, guess what we do? We strengthen one another. And as we strengthen another, we leave a path behind us that others can follow and say, ah, I see, that's how it's done. Look at those wheel tracks. It's pretty easy to follow. If I just kind of do the same thing that those ahead of me that have made it to the finish line are on the other side of glory, if I just follow that path, I'm going to be okay. They've left a very clear path for me to follow. And so we do. We strive through the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that glorifies God. And so as we help one another, as we pursue peace with one another, as we pursue sanctification or holiness together, as we grow in God's grace, we do that so we can finish together. And there are, those are the things that we do for each other to grow in God's grace. But the author of Hebrews also has some things that we're to be on the lookout for that he calls falling short of God's grace. He said, hey, do these things so you can grow in God's grace, but be on the lookout for these kind of things because they will cause you to fall short of God's grace. And so we saw that last time in verse 15. Look at that. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble, and by it many be defiled. So we fall short. We saw that in point number one last week. We fall short of the grace of God when we stop ministering to one another, not just helping one another, but truly ministering to one another. And what that means is that we are all called to some sanctified involvement in each other's lives. And you heard about that again this morning in Sunday school from Pastor Eric, right? You heard that again this morning that we are to be looking not to be some busybody in the church, but to lovingly come alongside and say, brother, how, how can I help you? What's, what's happening? How can I pray for you? How can I take some of this burden off of you? How can I come alongside you, carry the load? So we must consciously involve ourselves in the body of Christ assuming responsibility for seeing that others grow in grace. And guess what? As you do that, they're going to bless you as well. You're going to grow in grace 
from the things that are strong in their lives. So it's not just you having all the answers and helping others. Guess what? As you're serving and loving others, they're also going to be serving and loving you. And so then we grow together. And beloved, I told you this last week, we all need grace to finish the race. You will not be able to do this on your own. You need God's help. You need the Holy Spirit's empowerment, and you need each other. That's the point. So as a congregation, we should care about one another's souls. You should want to see people having faith in God's promises. And if that's not happening with somebody in the body of Christ, that shouldn't just be a pastor-elder concern. That should be a whole body of Christ concern. And we come alongside and we help them. We need to make sure no one drops out of the race. And if someone seems to be lagging behind or they've fallen, the one who sees it should go back and help them and lock their arm and help them to get back on their feet and get back into the race. I told you last week that I believe one of the main reasons we don't do this as often as we should is we know there are things in our own lives that just aren't right. And so we're afraid that if we try to help somebody else out, that all of our faults will be exposed. But you don't need to be spiritually perfect before you help your brother or sister deal with some danger in their life. Because if you had to be spiritually perfect before you can help anyone, nobody can help anybody. That includes your pastors and your elders. I know this is a big shock to you, but none of them are perfect either, okay? The requirement is is that you need to be walking with the Lord, confronting sins as they crop up in your life. And then if you see a fellow believer heading for spiritual trouble, you come alongside and help them, help them get back up and to keep running. You encourage them. Now, just as a reminder, keep your place in Hebrews and go back uh, four or five books to the book of Galatians. Book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Now, we looked at this again last week, but this is an important passage because it ties together with what we're talking about here uh, this last couple weeks. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, so who's he talking to? Believers. Even if anyone is caught in any trespass, that means is Someone's caught up in some sort of sin in their life, some sort of struggle. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit. How should we do it? Gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too, or you also, will not be tempted. What does that mean? Well, it's significant, as I told you last week, that Paul doesn't direct this verse only to the leaders of the flock, does he? Who is this addressed to? Who's supposed to be doing this? If you notice from your text, it tells us right there, you who are spiritual. Who are the people that are spiritual? Well, he just covered all of that in previous verses in chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. You know who those are that are spiritual are? They are those who are walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. You who are striving through the ministry of God's Holy Spirit, striving to live a life that glorifies God, you are the ones who are spiritual. And you are to come alongside and help. And then he gives a warning here. Notice he doesn't say only you who are super spiritual. 
Only the mega spiritual can help other people, right? Only those who are perfectly spiritual. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, you who are spiritual, you who are walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. They are aware, these people who are spiritual are aware of their own propensity to sin. That's why he says in there, look out for yourself also. Don't get caught up as you're helping others. Get caught up in the same thing. Go there with the spirit of being able to help them or to come alongside of them. Notice they don't condemn the one who's fallen, but they seek to restore them. And their aim is to help the other person get back into the race and finish. And beloved, that takes an entire congregation to do that. It's not just one or two. It's everybody looking out for everyone. So point number one, we fall short of the grace of God when we stop ministering to one another. Point number two, look at it's in, uh, go back into Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to that no one comes short of the grace of God. Here's the other part, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. So again, point number two, we fall short of the grace of God, not only when we stop ministering to each other, but also when we're bitter and unforgiving. That term, the root of bitterness, is actually from Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. We don't have time to unpack all that today, but I'll just put that as your reference. Deuteronomy 29, 18, where it talks about the root of bitterness spreading throughout God's children. And specifically in that passage, it's talking about idolatry. And idolatry is what? anything that we put above or in place of God. So the root of bitterness, though, in our text is primarily referring to someone who is bitter in the church, somebody who's angry, who's turned away from God. And if not addressed, if we don't come alongside to help that person, that actually spreads throughout an entire body. It starts to be, as people are complaining and complaining and complaining, nobody's addressing it, nobody's coming alongside, it starts to spread throughout the entire body. And usually it's somebody who's going through a severe trial, and God doesn't seem to be delivering them from that trial, or at least not delivering them in the way they want to be delivered, or certainly not God is not delivering them in the time frame they want God to deliver them from. And so they become bitter. And rather than submitting to God's sovereign hand or even discipline in their life, as we talked about before, or correction. They grow bitter against God, and they start thinking things like, this isn't fair. Why would God allow me to go through this? What did I ever do to deserve this kind of treatment? These kind of bad things happening in my life. After all, I'm one of the good ones. I can think of a whole bunch of people who are worse than me. That's usually how that train of thought goes. And that kind of bitterness, if not addressed, causes that believer all kinds of trouble in their life and easily spreads throughout the church. Proverbs 4.23 is a good verse for us to remember here. You can jot this one down. Here it is. Watch over your heart with all diligence. Here we go. Back to tie in again to Sunday school again. Your heart, biblically speaking, is the root of who you are. It's your mind, your emotion, and your will. That's what the Bible calls your heart. It's why you do the things you do. It's why you say the things you say. It's what's important in your life. It's all rooted in who or what 
is enthroned over your heart. So watching over your heart, though, is especially important. We're to do that every day, but especially important when you're going through a trial. Because bitterness always occurs when we're in the hard circumstances of our lives and we stop believing in the goodness of God or we stop believing in the kindness of God or we stop believing in the promises of God. And when we do that, we have a tendency to become bitter. And that bitterness is contagious. It is infectious. And it can spread through an entire congregation. And so again, he says, see to it that you are ministering to one another so that bitterness does not take root and spread in the congregation like some sort of poison, like some sort of rogue weed. We are to be on the lookout for those among us who have become or perhaps are becoming bitter or discouraged within the body of Christ. And it might be because of something that's happened in their life. It might be because of something. It might be the consequence of someone sinning against them. Or it might be a consequence of their own sin. It might be something that hasn't happened in their life that they were hoping would happen. But as a body of Christ, we are to be on the lookout, searching, looking for each other to help one another not from a position of superiority, not condescendingly looking down on each other, but recognizing there but by the grace of God go I. I got my own peccadillos I'm dealing with. I'm dragging those things. I'm trying to work through those things. But here's somebody who needs some help also. Let me come alongside them. That's the idea. Because the consequences of not doing so are severe. And if you look at it carefully, the way the bitterness is presented here in this text is it could be the reason why somebody falls away from the faith. And that's his greatest concern, isn't it? Those who've made a profession of faith and then something terrible has happened in their life and then they're in danger of walking away from their faith. But, you know, when you do that, you try to fill it in with something else, don't you? You try to find something else inside of you that will fill that emptiness that you have inside of you. And trust me, there's nothing else that will fill that inside of you. Only Christ. So point number one, we fall short of the grace of God when we stop ministering to others. Point number two, we fall short of the grace of God when we are bitter and unforgiving. Verse 16, it should say point three, but I think it says point one in your outline. Point three, we fall short of the grace of God when we are worldly. When we are worldly. At first glance, as you read this in verse 16, let's look at that together. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Well, at first glance, this verse would seem to indicate that Esau was both immoral and ungodly. But let's unpack that first part of the verse. First of all, what does it mean by the word immoral? That's actually, that word actually is where we get the word pornography from. So it refers to any kind of sinful sexual activity. But the Bible never says that Esau was immoral. In all likelihood, this reference to 
uh, immorality, if it did pertain to Esau's life, is probably in reference to the fact that in defiance of what he knew, he married foreign women or women who are from outside the community of faith is what they mean by foreign there. And he did this as an expression of his rebellion. In other words, he knew what he was supposed to do and decided to do something otherwise. Or that immoral could mean that it's just used generally with without reference to Esau and more of a counter to those who are pursuing holiness. Pursue holiness. Don't allow this kind of immorality in your life, generally speaking. It could mean that as well. But grammatically, my friends, either could be true. And since Scripture never tells us anywhere that Esau was immoral, I think it's best to understand that the immoral sits alone and that what's really describing Esau is the word ungodly. Or godless, you might have. And that's a completely different word. That's a word in the Greek, babelos, which means worldly or ungodly or secular. And it really describes someone who has no appreciation for spiritual things and treats all of those with contempt. Esau is singled out for a dramatic example of someone who turned their back on the grace of God for a single meal, sold his inheritance as the oldest son. So keep your place in Hebrews, and let's just refresh. Go back to the very first book of the Bible in the book of Genesis, chapter 25. And look at verse 29. We'll just look at a few verses here. Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there for I'm famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is a birthright to me? Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, which is red incidentally, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So the inheritance is supposed to go to the firstborn son, they were to get the majority of what the father had passed on to them. Materially speaking, they would get half, and then any other siblings would divide the other half up. So it was pretty substantial. And for Esau, specifically, the, the blessings of his inheritance would include the blessings that Abraham had promised to Isaac. So these are significant blessings. But what happens was that in a very kind of callous and unholy way, finding himself on an occasion where he's really what we would call today hangry, okay? He's not just hungry, he's hangry. He trades his birthright, something that was uh, beyond putting a value on. Let's just put it that way. With eternal consequences for a bowl of soup. 
That's what he did. He sells his birthright to his younger brother, and in the process, he shows how little he values the things of God and how much he despises his own inheritance, his own, his own uh, heritage, if you will. And his godlessness is demonstrated by the low value. He didn't sell it for a bunch of money. I mean, that would have been bad enough. He sold it for one bowl of soup. Esau gave up the unseen future promises of God for that which he could see and was visible today. He is the antithesis of Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of what? Things not yet seen. He said, I'll trade all that other stuff that you keep talking about because that's not important to me. That old God stuff and inheritance stuff and blessing stuff. I can't see any of that right now. Esau says, I know what I know, and what I know right now is I'm really hungry. So I'll give you all that stuff. You can take all that religious stuff. You can take all that God stuff. You can take all that heaven stuff and eternity stuff and salvation stuff. You can just take that with you. Just give me a bowl of soup. He's typical of those who live for the present today. The world, unfortunately, is full of Esau's who live to gratify their appetites today and they place no value on the promises of God. And the Bible portrays Esau as a man who succeeded admirably in everything the world had to offer, but he failed miserably in the things of God. He was a likable man's man. He was a skilled hunter and outdoorsman. He was a natural leader. He raised up over 400 men who followed him. He had beautiful wives, and he fathered sons who became leaders of their tribes, and his fame continued on for centuries. And so he succeeded financially. He succeeded materially. He succeeded by all the measurements of the world. He succeeded by becoming politically powerful, and, but he failed where it matters most. He failed with God. Point number three, we fall short of the grace of God when we're worldly. Okay, quickly, number four, point number four, verse 17. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessings, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Point number four, we fall short of the grace of God when we are unrepentant. When we are unrepentant. My friends, some decisions have irrevocable consequences. God will forgive all of our sins if we'll just truly repent. But you cannot undo some of the consequences from your former sins. You're going to have to live through those. But God will be with you, and he will give you the strength to endure those. Our God is faithful. He will not give you more than what you can handle. And he will provide a way of escape also so that you may endure it. Son's sins have a searing effect on our consciences. And when Esau lost that blessing, at first he felt bad. He wept about it, but then he got over it. He moved on with life. He became successful. In later years, he probably thought, you know, at the time, I thought losing that blessing was kind of a big deal, but life is pretty good now. 
But notice that little phrase, when he desired to inherit the blessing. Notice that it's referring to what? It's referring to the blessing, not to repentance. Esau is not seeking repentance with tears. He's seeking the blessing with tears. In other words, he's not sorry about the sin of despising God. He's not, he's not repentant about the idea that he turned his back on God and is living for the world. He's just mad that he missed something and that this could be something that would be added to his life and make his life better. He's sorry he didn't get the blessing. In other words, he couldn't care less about seeking God for the joy of knowing God. He only wanted to make he only wanted God to give it to him so that it would make his life more enjoyable. And my friends, there are many today who are Christians for the same reasons. If God will give them a happy marriage and a family life and good health and a comfortable lifestyle, well then okay. Fine, I'll get up every Sunday morning. I'll come to church. I'll do my due diligence here. If God will just give me what I want, so they kind of strike this bargain with God. If you'll just make my life easier, if you'll just eliminate all the troubles out of my life, if you'll just make sure I don't have to go through a bunch of trials, fine, 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 I'll worship you. That's kind of the idea. But then if life becomes difficult, if some severe trial hits... They start shopping somewhere else for something else they think works better than God. And their allegiance is not to God, my friends. Their allegiance is to themselves. If they can use God to get what they want, they'll do it. But if God isn't working for them, they move on. They're just like Esau. They desire the blessing, but they really aren't interested in knowing what the psalmist calls the joy of his blessing. Listen to what the psalmist writes in Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's a story that's told of a man who loved old books and he met with an acquaintance who had just thrown away a Bible that had been stored in the attic of his ancestral home for generations. And so he told us, friend, I couldn't read it. Somebody named Guten something had printed it. And his friend goes, not, not Gutenberg? That, that Bible was one of the first books ever printed. A copy that just sold for $2 million. And his friend was unimpressed. Mine wouldn't have brought even a dollar. Some guy, some guy named Martin Luther had scribbled all over it in German. My friends, this fictitious story shows how a person can treat as worthless what is really most valuable. And that's what Esau did. He might have been a nice guy, but he was an ungodly man because he sold his spiritual birthright. He traded the immeasurable inheritance of God for a bowl of soup. Only when it was too late to undo that bargain or that deal in his mind did he realize he had sacrificed the permanent on the altar of the immediate. We 
had better be careful of the choices we make in this life. Because many today place a high value on things that you won't take with you, my friends, when you die. There is no U-Haul behind the hearse, okay? None of that's going with you. And so you ought to place value on the things that have eternal value, not temporary value. Ask the Lord to help you discern what's worth keeping and what's best discarded in your life. Beloved, when we take all these verses together, what's the writer's overall point? His whole point in verses 12 to 17 seems to be he wants his readers to be concerned to care for and protect the community of God. Which involves at least two things. Keeping an eye out for each other. Ministering to each other. Helping each other. Looking out and addressing bitterness when it begins to surface. And taking seriously those like Esau who are overtly rebellious or who trivialize or who despise the things of God. Come alongside. Love them enough to come up and help. People in both those camps are in a really dangerous position because they're in danger of not obtaining the grace of God, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. And they're also in a position to do great damage to the body of Christ if we don't come alongside and help them. The writer of Hebrews' exhortation, my friend, is not just for you to run the race individually. It's that we run the race with endurance. Which is why it's vitally important that we strive for peace with everyone. That we pursue and hunt down holiness. That we care for and protect the community of God's people. Because it's not just about you crossing the finish line. It's not just about me crossing the finish line. Guess what? It's about us crossing the finish line together. How do we make sure we finish the race? We make sure we don't fall short of the grace of God. How do we fall short of the grace of God? We fall short of the grace of God when we stop ministering to one another. We fall short of the grace of God when we become bitter and unforgiving. We fall short of the grace of God when we become worldly, when we care more about the world than we do about the things of God. And we become we fall short of the grace of God when we are unrepentant of those things. And we wallow in that and stay in that for long periods of time. I'm going to ask the men to come forward here.